This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by HBO on Amazon. What if I told you we could combine your love for premium cable with your dependence on online shopping? I bet you'd go pretty crazy. Well, time to go fucking nuts, because now we can. An HBO subscription includes instant streaming of unlimited access to addictive dramas, hilarious comedies, movies, and so much more. Fans of this show will love watching Veep, Silicon Valley, Mr. Show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is back and I, I've been enjoying. I think it's doing okay. I think, I think some older episodes are better, but this is certainly still good. I love Curb. Uh, <laughs> I like how I put my review of Curb into this HBO on Amazon ad. They actually... Curb filmed right outside my apartment in L.A. like seven months ago, so I can't wait to see the outside of my apartment in the show. Uh, you know, this should be an ad for Curb. I wouldn't have said it was okay. I would have said it. Anyway, Amazon is offering a free seven-day trial for HBO, and you can get it by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash HBO. After the trial, you get unlimited access to anything on HBO for just $14.99 a month. That's a good deal for HBO. My parents pay for HBO, and I assume they're paying more than that. Once again, get your seven-day free trial for HBO by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash HBO. It's not TV. It's HBO, which is brought to you by Amazon. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing... Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the support our artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would, and we get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Allison Rich, former writer on SNL and Billy on the Street, and one of the stars of Party Over Here. If you like this interview, check out the one with Nick Rutherford, another former SNL writer, or the ones with Lauren McGuire and Nick Weiger, writers on Party Over Here. Here is Allison Rich. Uh, Allison, thanks for coming on the show. For sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm from Long Island. Oh, okay. Yeah. What was it, what was it like growing up there? know i mean i it's the only place i grew up so i it's hard to compare to another experience because i didn't have one um but it was like suburban i went to catholic school till 10th grade and then in 10th grade i transferred to the public school i feel like i didn't really have um what people would consider the long island experience because my parents were transplants and I didn't, like, there's a huge Jewish community in Long Island, and, like, I, because I went to Catholic school for so long, I, like, never went to a bar or bat mitzvah. Um, there's also, like, a big Italian community, and I'm not Italian, but, um, you know, it was suburban and um, nice to be near New York City, even though, like, the only time I ever went was, like, obviously with my parents, so it's not like I was okay. having a super wild New York experience yeah. or anything like that. But, yeah, it was good. I would do it again. Did you go see uh, like Broadway shows? Yes, I was a big theater nerd. That okay. was like my first love. I wanted to be on Broadway. Um, and so I think maybe I saw my first show at like 11. Oh, wow. And then, you know, maybe saw like 15. Between, or maybe, oh. that's not, maybe like 10 or something between then and college. Um, but yeah, that was my... Dad used to do this thing that maybe now sounds weird, but he would like for every 
I have three brothers, and for each of our birthdays, we would do a date with our dad, which sounds like <laughs> poor branding, like that, you know. But basically, it was like it's a day for you to do whatever you want yeah. with dad. And so I would always like go see a Broadway show. Um, so I typically saw one once a year, and then here and there a little more. Were you uh, doing theater like at school? Yeah, I first became interested in theater at nine, and then I like maybe that year or a year later went to a theater summer camp and then when I was in fifth grade my class would uh that particular teacher would always do a production of um a Christmas Carol okay and I was cast as Scrooge as like a like I've always been very short and I was the smallest girl in the class but did the best audition my class like you had to read whatever the material was in front of the class and I was voted you know um Scrooge which in retrospect is like very funny and progressive and cool um and then I just kept doing more and more theater like in school and um would do I went to like a sleepaway summer camp uh which was a theater camp so yeah was it uh interlocan is that the one no but i definitely have a lot of actor friends now who went there it was french woods i feel like the three i've heard about is french woods stage door and interlocan i had a uh a teacher in college who went to interlocan Uh and she did like um for some reason, she thought she should do like a one-woman show about interlocking in their class. Oh my gosh! Uh, oh, she did like an excerpt from her one-woman show about going interlocking. Okay. Um, and it was weird, obviously. Yeah. And she was like an English teacher; it wasn't like a theater class or anything. Yeah. I think about it a lot. It was sure. A strange moment. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> so did you go to college for theater? No, um, but I did a lot of extracurricular theater. I was always super academic, and there's nobody really artsy in my family. And so even though from a young age I told my parents I wanted to be an actor, they were like, we don't know anything about that, and maybe you'll grow out of it. So I kind of, while doing theater, really kept up my academics. And then when it came time to apply to college, I like kind of glanced at you know, NYU and things like that. But I was like, I don't know how to... Like, you know, there was an audition where you had to do two monologues or something, and I was right. like, I don't even know where I'd begin. So I just kind of stuck to the academic, like, you know, the academic route, and then did a lot of um, extracurricular theater. Where'd you go to school? Harvard. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they had a really active student-run theater community, which I felt like at the time, I was when I was first going there, I was like, wait, I'm just going to, like, learn from my peers like what do they know I want like a professional you know instructor but in retrospect it's actually like much more like how life is in that especially in comedy it's like you and your buddies get together and make something and there was a lot more you know you had a lot more control and so I I appreciate it in retrospect uh during this time are you like interested in comedy at all or yeah I certainly found that my role models shifted from like Kristen Chenoweth to Amy Poehler like I'd always watched SNL um but when I was in college all the roles I would be cast in were the like funny side character um and I made friends with these two other people that were also like big in the theater scene and they were like amazing singers and I was like oh I'm not an amazing I can sing but I'm not really great oh what is special about me like I can do funny voices and you know be the comic relief. So then I was like, 
you know, shifting my role models and getting even more into comedy. And I remember Hulu came out um, when I was in college and uh, suddenly I was like, oh, I can watch SNL every weekend um, after the fact. So, yeah. Uh, So when did you discover UCB? I discovered, well, it's funny because I guess I actually went to a show there when I was like 16, not knowing what it was. Like some friend from my high school was like, we're going to go into the city and see this show. And I can remember that there was this guy, Birch Harms, who was on the show. He was this New York guy. Um, He had a very distinctive look, so his image is etched in my brain. But I think it might have been like like school night or something which is okay. I don't I don't think they have that out in LA but in New York there was a show on Wednesday nights that was like a real just like open mic like not great show and maybe it wasn't that but it was something where it's like if you want to give someone a first impression of UCB this is not yeah. the way to do it and then a couple years later on like one of these like dates with my dad which in retrospect again sounds so gross to say <laughs> after seeing a Broadway show we then like went to UCB because I was like, this is a place that people say is cool. And then we saw Death by Ruru, which is amazing, but my dad's like very conservative. And Death by Ruru is like the crass, edgy, inappropriate improv show. So I don't even think I could appreciate anything about the comedy because I was so uncomfortable with like, like they're talking about like sucking dicks and stuff. And I'm sitting next to my like super Catholic dad. Um, and then when I was in college, I had auditioned for the short form improv team and I had done a lot of short form in these acting classes I would take in high school. And, um, I was like, I should be able to do like the short form improv team in college. And I didn't get on, but one of the guys on the team was like, you should take classes at UCB in the summer and that'll like get you where you need to be. And so I did that and then didn't get on the the uh, short form improv team. But even then I wasn't like immediately hooked. Um, And it wasn't until I graduated from college and really started to, you know, just take classes obsessively that I was like, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. Well, well, you say you weren't immediately hooked. So what was it the thing that made you decide to like keep going with it? Um, I don't remember a singular moment, but I think that, um, when I graduated from college, I was like, I don't know how you become an actor. Mm. Um, so I started to show up for like cattle call musical theater auditions. Cause I still thought like, yeah, Broadway, I want to do that. Um, and that wasn't going great. And I was like, even if I was doing well at this, it would mean like, you know, Oh, I booked a production of kiss me Kate in Rhode Island where I made mm. 200 bucks a week. So I kept, taking UCB classes and doing these cattle call auditions. And I was like, at least UCB, it feels like I can see what's down the line and um, there's structure. And I'm like such a natural nerd that like I love classes and order and hierarchy. So I was like, I can traverse this. Whereas like this musical theater thing seems so um, discombobulated. Uh, So I think, and then like, you know, when you're 21, 22 and you're, thrust into a community that at the time was like a couple hundred people and like feels like high school you know I think that was like a turn on for me of like oh I can this just feels manageable to navigate um so I think all of those things led to me being like yeah this is the place Mm -hmm. uh what teachers did you have 
Oh my gosh. I did take a million classes, yeah. so I had like all of them of a certain generation. But I guess like, you know, my 101 teacher was Ari Voikidis, and then my, I took a 201 intensive, and that was like Neil Casey and Anthony Atamanik. And then I had Ari again and Shannon O'Neill for 301. And then I took like 401 a bunch of times because I kept failing it. I had like Porter Mason, Gavin Spieler, and Shannon again. And then I was also taking the sketch classes. I was like Charlie Sanders and Neil. And then I took like every advanced study a million times. And that was like Will Hines, Kevin Hines, Anthony King, um, Becky Drysdale started coming around at that time, Brandon Gardner, uh, people like that. Yeah. Uh, when did you, it sounds like you came to UCB mostly as an actor. So yes. So when did the writing come into it? Um, I took... I guess I did start taking the writing classes summers between college just because I was like, I uh, want to be as involved as can be. And it seemed like as my role models were shifting from theater people to like the Tina Fey's, um, it felt like the comedy people that I admired also wrote. So yeah, I just started to take the writing classes pretty soon into taking the improv classes and I initially felt very insecure about my writing like I remember skipping as many classes as I could and without like failing because I just felt like every week when I brought in work it was so bad um and then I just kept doing it and um then came time to like apply for mod and I was really dying to be an actor and I mentioned it to my dad and he was like, well, can you also apply to be a writer? And I was like, yeah, but that's not my thing. And he was like, well, why, you know, why not? So I did apply as both and like very last minute put a packet together. Like one of my some sketches was just like a weird monologue that I'm like, I can't imagine how that would have been appropriate. Um, but then I got on as both and in New York at the time, I don't even know if this is still the case, but you could be a writer and an actor. And then I was intimidated, but it was like immediately a huge gift. Or I don't know if in the moment I realized it was a gift, but like then it suddenly forced me to write. And then I realized like, oh, I'm not compared to the other writers on the team who are also great. I was like, it's not like I'm struggling, you know? And so then I was like, oh, I'm a writer too. And it gave me a lot more power, you know, to like make stuff for myself. So I would say that mod experience was the turning point. Uh, when you say you did a weird monologue, what do, you, what do you mean? Like, I just think in a typical sketch packet, especially for UCB, oh, okay. you know, you're writing like sketches with multiple characters. Okay. And like one of my submissions was like a monologue, which I'm like, I don't know. I just, I think it was like, a kid praying to God or something, but it, like the whole sketch was just like the kid praying. I don't even remember what the funny part of it was, um, but it just seemed like a real unlikely submission. <laughs> uh, so when you're a writer actor, yeah, are you mostly writing for yourself, or are you trying to write? No, they actually we got like an email if I remember correctly from the artistic director to the, there were like six writer actors, like one on each team, or maybe there were I don't remember if there were eight teams at the time or six. But specifically being like, do not just write for yourself. You should be writing like, you know, more for other people. And I was so nervous about making a good impression that I pretty much only wrote for other people and then ended up being underserved as an actor, which like in respect was like, who gives a shit? But um, yeah, I was very nervous about seeming like I, you know, 
was being self-centered about the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I know you do a lot of characters. Uh-huh. What's your, like, your process for creating characters? Well, it's honestly been a little while because, um, you know, I really was committed to that when I was sort of gunning for SNL and then Montreal. And so um, since that stuff's behind me, I don't do it as much, but I miss it. And I'm like developing a show now where I'm like playing multiple characters. So I guess I'm doing some of it, but it's not the same as like, you know, a live bit. But, um, you know, it wasn't a single process. Like different characters came in different ways. I do know one thing I like to do is because I like to do voices, but I wouldn't actually say that I have like a ton of range or I'm like great at accents. So sometimes I'll just start doing a voice because I'm like, what can I do? And then that's like figure out what that character is from there. Um, So that's one sort of tried and true way. Sometimes I like to do like musical type things. So sometimes I'll like open up garage band and like play a weird song and see if that inspires me. So, yeah. Uh, And you now direct a mod team. I don't anymore. I did for nine months, the team, the new deal, which was great, Mm -hmm. but there came a point where I was like, you know, just needing to focus on other things. But it it was a great experience and I did it and I'm interested in directing and that was really formative because it made me go like, oh, I can do this. Um, so, yeah. What, what do you uh, look for when you're directing a sketch? Um, a clear idea, um, you know, staying ahead of the audience in the writing. When it, it comes to staging, like, Again, staying ahead of the audience and also just using um, every element you have at your disposal. Like, oh, could we make this entrance from this, like, weird door we did, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like, really being theatrical about the experience. Um, and, yet yeah, having, you know, I'm, I guess I'm really concerned with the audience getting bored. So, like, if there's any opportunity for a sub game or um, to just make more of a moment than what's on the page. Mm-hmm. I look for that. And so you, you directed uh, in L.A. Yeah. Uh, and you were a writer-performer in New York. Right. What are, like, the differences between, like, New York and L.A. in terms of, like, that, in terms of mod night? Yeah. Well, I, I also did mod out here. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I've lived in L.A. twice now, and this is the second time. The mm-hmm. first time I was added to a mod team as a writer, and then I was switched to an actor, um, and so I feel like that, ex- I guess both of my LA experiences would inform the answer to this question, but, um, I think broadly speaking, New York is a little more centralized, at least when I was there. Now, when I was there, it was like a smaller thing, but like everyone on Maude knew everyone on Herald and, you know, um, you just, it felt like more of a community. Um, But I think there's a lot of strengths to LA being a bit more decentralized because, you know, when I came out to LA, I started taking classes again and you would be in a class where someone in your class was like a series regular on a show and the teacher was like, will you read my script? Like, there, you know, not, not I'm being hyperbolic, but like, I think the drawback of UCB being 
an insular community is that people suddenly get all puffed up about like, I'm on a weekend team. When it's like, who gives a shit? What does that actually mean (laughs) to the comedy career that I would um, assume you came here for? You know, and so because in LA, like, it is a little too big. People don't know um, the people beyond the ones that they're like directly interacting with. I don't think you know, it's as rife for like the egos of like, well, I'm on this team and I'm friends with these people. It's like, at the end of the day, we're all going to be in the same audition rooms, the same writers rooms. Like it doesn't matter if like you're on a beta team or whatever they're calling any of the teams these days. Um, But yeah, I also think that like what's, what muddies my ability to answer that question is that there's such turnover and uh, UCB on both coasts has grown so much um, that sometimes the difference is it's unclear if it's like a coastal difference or a just size and era difference. Um, but I think there's like super, super talented people on both, uh, both coasts. Mm Uh, back in New York, you made a web series, uh, called Incognito. Mm -hmm. Uh, what prompted you to do that? You know, I just knew that the next step was making my own stuff. And I had met a guy in, um, a sketch 301 uh, named Andrew Law and he was the first person I met in a writing class that I was like fuck this guy's really good because as much as I was like my own work sucks I also in a snotty way thought everybody else's work sucked <laughs> um, which like at the initial levels of a sketch writing class like probably everybody does suck but Andrew's the first person where I was like this guy's really funny and I basically cornered him and was like we should work together and he wasn't really convinced but then we ended up in some improv classes together and I think through that he saw that I was funny um so then we were like we're gonna work together and you know we were pretty well versed in like the people making video content at the time like we would talk a lot about these guys Britannic um and we're like we need to be them but we knew that our shtick wouldn't be the same because they at the time we're making videos that seemed to be like a heightened absurdist version of themselves. Whereas we really like doing weird characters, you know, we would fancy ourselves more like Chris Lilies and Christopher guests than like just extensions of ourselves. Um, and so we started meeting like twice a week trying to think of stuff. And then one day we sort of mind melded. Like I was like, what if we did something with identity theft? Because that would be an opportunity to like, cause we wanted to play different characters And then Andrew had an even better idea, which was like, no, what if it's like witness protection? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's how that came to be. Uh, What's it like uh, collaborating with another person like that? Um, It's great. It's also really hard. I feel like it's really akin to like a relationship. You know, um, I feel like I've learned a ton from working with Andrew because we have like, I think we've got like an exact Venn diagram of like we overlap on 50% and we don't overlap on the other 50%. Um, But so we really had to learn how to like communicate. And I think what sees us through is that at the end of the day, we both like really respect each other as comedians and humans. So when we're having differences, like that sees us through. Um, But yeah, just realizing like what's important to the other person and realizing that 
like the way you interpret a situation is not the way that, I mean, it really feels like a relationship. Like Mm -hmm. I'm much more extroverted and loud and like emotional than Andrew and Andrew is like measured and thoughtful and private, you know? And so, or like, I'm really, um, I can be flaky about like, oh, I'll leave my keys anywhere, my phone anywhere. Um, or I'll leave like the door unlocked. Whereas he's like really, aware of like security and his possessions but he might like he had he's not always great at like paying attention in the moment and I'll be like you you think I don't matter and you're not and it's like no no he just like has always been a little bit spacey in that regard and I don't need to take it personally um so yeah it's a balancing act um but uh I would say to anyone who's like trying to figure out how to collaborate like make sure you're picking people who you respect, but also like have your own thing going because you don't want to feel like dependent on the other person, you know, for your creative life. That's interesting because I know a lot of writing partners do like everything together. Yeah. And that makes it, I guess that'd be kind of tough if like when you you split up, you're kind of left alone. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's certainly those examples of like staff writing, writing partners. And Andrew and I weren't really um, going down that path. He's more of a writer than I am. And um, so, yeah, I would think it would be tricky navigating that. But I guess I were more of a all-purpose creative partnership. Mm, okay. So I think when you're both writers and actors, um, having your own things too is, like, really helpful. That's just – I mean, sometimes – there are those duos that like really can I mean, Britannic is an example of that. Like they, they seem to have, I don't know them super well, but they seem to have been able to navigate like doing everything together, which is awesome. Uh, what are the hallmarks of a good web series to you? Oh, hmm. You know, I think with any like piece of art, it's a little difficult to be like these three things yeah. and that's it. Um, but originality of the idea. I mean, I used to put like more, um, on that than now like I've always been into like high concept really premisey things as opposed to like a couple buddies hanging out but then when you go to execute something that's like really high concept and complicated it can kind of choke the comedy right like there are a million improv scenes that take place in restaurants because like once you have a simple setup you can really let the comedy breathe so I remember when like Broad City was happening I was like a show about just like two girls in their 20s, like, like, uh, what, uh, where can that really go? And then you realize, like, oh, it's such an open idea that there is so much they can do. So I'm kind of like going back on my, I guess it's not so much that the idea needs to be original as like the voice needs to be original. Because yeah. so many people can do a restaurant improv scene or a show about like young people hanging out, but it's like the way in which they execute it that, um, sets it apart so yeah I just think an original voice is a huge mm-hmm. part of it yeah it makes sense yeah uh, and you wrote on Billy on the Street yeah How, uh, where, how'd you get that job I just submitted a packet it was like pretty quickly after I'd gotten my representation they were like do you want to submit for this and so I you know was decently tapped into pop culture at the time and just like spent every waking moment for a week on this packet and um, it worked out, and it was really cool. What was that? What was the packet like? It was like I think 
a certain number of objective questions, a certain number of subjective questions, and some games. So, you know, part of the shtick of that show is that, like, Billy would ask these subjective questions where it's like, there isn't a factual answer, but the correct answer is what lines up with his opinion. Mm -hmm. So you'd ask a question. So, you know, the objective questions were like, which celebrity feeds her baby like a bird and there's an actual answer to that that's like Alicia Silverstone like apparently once like chewed up food and like regurgitated it so that's an objective question but then the subjective questions obviously not that you don't understand the meanings of those words but particular to or pertaining to the Billy on the Street world you know he'd be like if you were caught in a brush fire like who would be better to save you like Mario Lopez or this that and the other and it's like obviously a complete matter of opinion. So you're, I was just trying to, you know, you're writing multiple choice questions and you uh, want to fold jokes into that structure and then there'd be games where it's like some take on like fuck, Mary kill or some, you know, just if you've seen the show, mm-hmm. that shtick, mm-hmm. you get it. What was, uh, what was like the writer's room like for that? It was great. It was very small. Mm-hmm. It was Billy, Julie Klausner, Gabe Liebman and me, which was oh, wow. crazy. Um, and I mean, I felt like a little, I think I was 24 or 25 and they were all like, uh, just in a different place than me career wise. And they were older. And so Billy and Julie are, were like best buds. And then Gabe, I think they, they hadn't known me at all. And Gabe, they knew somewhat and was sort of more, in their world, so I felt a little bit like, okay, I'm just, like, in the corner. Um, but, like, they were super nice, and it was a cool... And it was, like, six weeks and good money. So it was a great first writing experience. I mean, there did come a time where I was like, I don't want to read Edward Hilton or, you know, to get, like, pop culture info, but... Um, it was a it was a good situation. So so during those six weeks, are you just like reading and digesting all this pop culture stuff to try to find takes to do jokes on? Yeah, pretty much. Right. Is that like so? Is that kind of taxing? Yeah, you just like it's like ingesting a bunch of like popcorn or packing peanuts, where you're like, there isn't substance to this, and I get you know a bit bored. But like, I find in any writer's room, there comes a point where you're like, oh, I'm feeling drained. So it wasn't in a way that um, was worse than any other writing experience or anything. It was pretty positive. Do you have a favorite joke that you got on the show? Gosh, it was so long ago that I don't really... I mean, I remember, like, I came up with this game called, like, Meredith Baxter Gurney, where, like, people were strapped to, like, a gurney in an ambulance and then had to answer trivia about, like, sitcom moms. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was so weird. Like, a lot of times when I couldn't think of jokes, I'd just be like, what rhymes? <laughs> um, so, yeah. That's so, that show is so good about doing, like, the crazy uh, production design for this Yeah. Show. Another thing that I had gotten on was, like, Billy and Pink were in, like, harnesses in, like, a circus. Like, they were... Because I guess Pink at the time was really into all of that, yeah. like, Spanish web or whatever, that aerial stuff. And so they were up in those harnesses and then, like, had to answer these questions about, like, would you rather do X horrible thing or spend an hour with Mario Lopez? And, like, one of them was, like, have a cat inside you or something. Um, So that was fun, like, seeing Pink laugh at at the ideas. 
when uh, when there's like celebrity stuff, do you guys are you guys like told like, hey, Pink's coming, so like write some Pink related material or? Yeah, I think there was some of that where they'd be like, we're pretty um, sure that you know this celebrity is going to be available, so let's think of as much of this and that. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, you worked on uh, SNL. Yeah. Uh-huh. How would you get hired uh, for that? Um, I was going through the process of uh, auditioning to be a cast member, which basically was like being enough in the UCB scene. Um, I guess, you know, it's a small enough world and that's one of the places that SNL looks for new people. My name had somehow come, I think, to SNL's attention and so they were doing, they were going to come to UCBLA for a showcase in June and I was asked to be on it um and then did the showcase and it like went well you know it was something like there were like I don't know like 16 or 20 of us and it was just four women because I think that year they were not really looking for women um I'd been hearing like they weren't looking for female performers but they were maybe looking for like a female writer so I did that showcase and it like went well and then I didn't really hear anything and the year before I'd also been interested and like my friend John Milheiser ended up getting it and he we had the same agent at the time and John seemed to have like a ton of heat behind him for this like was getting Montreal and just was like being invited to all the showcases and I wasn't and I was like mm, as much as I want it this year it doesn't seem to be happening. And then John had, like, not the best experience. And so that made me be like, okay, don't, like, chase after SNL. If it's supposed to happen for you, like, you don't need to rush into it, which I think was oddly zen for the type of person that I am. Um, So in the following year, I wasn't, like, calling up my agents being like, you gotta submit me. But they had asked for me. And then I like slowly started to make a tape just in case because the year before I'd made a tape and my agents were like, this is bad. We're not going to send it. And I was very like devastated at the time. But in retrospect, it was the right move. Um, So I like was making a tape kind of in secret. And then a month later, I was asked to do another showcase at IO because like other producers were coming and I had like no notice. They're like, just do what you did at the previous one. Did that. And that was a different experience because the first one was at UCB where I like knew people. It was at night. Tons of people were there. It was really fun. The next one was like on Wednesday at 4 p.m. in a theater that I like didn't really perform at. I had to go first. I didn't know the other performers. Um, And I told myself I'd like wait around and watch other people, but I just felt so like, like I don't even want to think about this. So I just bolted after I performed. And then I I finished the tape sent it to my reps and I was like I made this like let me know what you think I can change anything you want I don't know like what do you think and I didn't hear anything from them and then a week went by and I was like did you hate it I'll change it and they're like oh no we thought it was great we sent it in and I was like okay like you could have told me (laughs) and then something like a week after that I got a call that was like you're gonna fly out to test and I was like oh my god so I flew out and did the test and um, sort of did a combination of what I'd been doing in the live performances and what was on my tape. And um, the test was like weird, you know. I didn't leave it being like, I crushed it. Because it's an odd setup, you know. You're on the monologue stage and it's a really cavernous space and there's like 
eight people watching you like kind of off to your left in darkness and you can't really see them and they don't laugh much. And I remember as soon as I did it, I was like, oh, can I go again? Like it was happening so fast. Um, when you do like, so you've been doing the kind of some of the same characters, right? The yeah. Yeah. So when you go do it um, live on that stage and there's like only eight people and they're off the side, like, do you change things up a little bit? Not that the characters necessarily, but the way you do it, do you do like bigger maybe or... Um, I didn't really change my performance much. If anything, I think like it probably went faster because I wasn't getting the laughs of a full audience. Mm -hmm. And I did also like cheat out to the left to perform in the direction of the people watching. But then I realized kind of halfway through that there was a camera directly in front of me and the people in the audience were looking at the monitors. So they weren't even looking at me even when I did cheat out. And then what they were seeing would have been like me in profile because I was looking the wrong way and I felt dumb about that. Um, But yeah, it was just like a surreal mess. And then I knew a handful of the people also testing and like we all went out and got drinks after. I couldn't stop talking about how I felt like I was like looking in the wrong direction, which I'm sure was very annoying to all those people. (laughs) Um, And then like a week later, I was in an improv practice and I had like eight missed calls from my reps And I thought, best case scenario, like, I got a meeting with Lauren because I knew that for a cast member, um, you're not going to get hired until you've met with him. But then they were like, you were hired to write. And I was like, oh, great, great. I was immediately, like, excited but terrified because I hadn't written a packet. Mm -hmm. And even though I'd been writing all along and wrote all my material, I was like, they don't know what my writing is really like and I feel like more of a performer and that's what I want to do and it felt like I had made a really good impression I guess as a performer because I was like the first person they hired from that group um but I was like am I gonna go ruin my good impression by doing this like other thing that they don't really know about my abilities and also I'm like as far as I could tell I was being hired by like producers and not the head writers who had like Red, so it's like I was being hired by a certain group and then my bosses were someone else. So, you know, it was like nerve-wracking. But of course, you're not going to be like, no, I don't know if this is all lining up. <laughs> um, but I think they often like will hire writers from the audition process. Mm-hmm. So when you when you go there, yeah, are you thinking like, well, maybe if I do good as a writer, they'll like maybe look at me again as a performer. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you when you go there and you start writing, uh, what's like your schedule like? Uh, it's very insane. I mean, it's the same every week. Um, like Monday, there's this topical meeting and the pitch meeting. Tuesday is like writing night where you're kind of there basically through Wednesday. Wednesday's the table read. Thursday, there's like a punch up table on Friday and Saturday's rehearsal. And, like, a lot of the days start, you know, Monday, you don't really get there till like, 3 or 4. Tuesday, you can kind of show up whenever. And sometimes I would show up at noon, and that, like, made me a nerd. Like, a lot of people didn't show up till like, 5. And there's a lot of, you know, it's a very cool place. It's a very hallowed place. A lot of amazing stuff's come out of there. But, like, it's a pretty flawed system. (laughs) Like, they could have people come in 9 to 5 every day and work. And you would probably get way more done, you know? Um, But instead, it's like on Tuesday, people don't show up to like three or four. People aren't really getting going to like six. 
Then there's like this dinner break. There's no communication between people that like, oh, you're writing a Scaramucci sketch. Maybe I shouldn't write one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's also like a dinner with the host, um, like at like 11 p.m. that half of the cast goes to. So if you're trying to write with a cast member, they disappear for hours. And then like also the host will, for the most part, come around to each writer's room or writing office and like hear your what you're thinking of pitching if you want. And then you might like be like, hey, so whatever, Naomi Watts, I'm going to write this thing for you where you're doing an impression of whatever, Kate Hudson. And she might be like, oh, I don't do impressions. And then like all afternoon you might have been working on that thing and then you have to like throw it out. So, you know, it's a very, people like make the joke that it was like in the 70s, people were all on coke doing it and they kind of just, have kept the cocaine schedule without the cocaine. But, you know, it's a silly situation. Uh, How many, like, sketch ideas would you have by that first meeting? Well, that was a whole other silly aspect of it where, for the most part, there was sort of this unspoken rule that you would pitch an idea that you weren't actually going to write, which I found very frustrating because you're spending kind of all of Monday being like, what is something that I can say in two sentences that will make people laugh so I can sort of maintain my street cred as a funny person, but I don't actually want to write, which is such a minefield because you're like, okay, but then I actually have to think of something I want to write. Um, and I, I guess the fucked up reasoning behind that is like the table read is so make or break for the writers that if you've said your idea on Monday when it's written on Wednesday and it's being read out loud for the first time. It's less surprising because people know what the joke is going to be. Um, so, yeah, that, uh, so, you know, you have one, uh, one or two ideas for the pitch meeting, and like there's rules about like if you're low on the totem pole, you should only say like one idea, whereas if you're higher up on the totem pole, you can say like two. And then, Similarly, for what actually gets to the table read, like if you're low on the totem pole, you maybe get one sketch at the table read. Sometimes you don't get any. And then if you're high on the totem pole, you could have like six sketches in. Mm-hmm. So you said the table read is kind of make or break. What would you do differently kind of to make your sketches like stand out for being read? I mean, there was no logic to it. Yeah. There's nothing you can, you know, you just, so much of it is like the chemistry of, who's there when you're there and have you found a collaborator and you learn some things like I remember my first week realizing that like so many of the writers would use funny music cues to sort of take it up a level so I started to like incorporate more music but it's really like you can calculate all you want but it's sort of like do people think of you as cool these days um how like it's just very fickle there's like You can't control it. You just do your best, and that's that. Would you try to write uh, to cast members or kind of just, like, evergreen material? It was both. Mm -hmm. You know, what would be hard about the cast members is that they would really find, like, oh, you know, there's these two writers, James Anderson and Ken Sublett, and they wrote all of, like, Kristen Wiig's, like, amazing stuff. And then when I was there, it was sort of, they were writing for Cecily. So if you wanted to write something for Cecily, I'm sure she would oblige, but, like, she would be spending most of her time with James and Kent because those were the veteran writers that were really going to get something in. So you could say you were writing something for Cecily, but she wasn't necessarily going to have the time to um, 
work with you on it or create it with you or like put her name on the sketch. Um, so yeah, but then sometimes if you just had like a good game show idea that wasn't tied to a person, you would just do that. Like I definitely spent a lot of time trying to like game the system and figure out the logic. And at the end of the day, it's like, you can't, you just got to keep going. And like, it's either going to work or it's not. And you continue to live. Uh, what's the difference in like writing sketch for mod, not like in the external stuff, but the actual sketches, like for mod night versus like SNL? You know, SNL is much more tied to like pop culture and the current scene and, you know, uh, politics and things like that. Whereas mod feels a little bit more like just like art for art. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, did you have trouble, like, doing politics and stuff like that? Yeah, I never really wrote political stuff, but that also, like, was something that was left to the more senior writers. Um, so, I could do pop culture stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, did you have any favorite sketches that got on air? I had sketches that got on air. I wouldn't say they were my favorites because, you know... At a certain point, like, you kind of, I'd been advised to, like, well, write, like, the broader stuff at the top of the show, like, the game show sketches and things like, and the talk show sketches, because the more senior writers don't want to write that, but we have a need for it. Um, And so I got stuff on, but I wasn't like, this is me, this is my, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I got this, like, Iggy Azalea talk show on, because, like, she, you know... And, like, I had auditioned with a Ruth Bader Ginsburg impression. So then I knew that, like, Kate did that impression. And so I brought it to her, and that became, like, a recurring Weekend Update character. Um, And then I got, like, a commercial parody on and this other, like, fake movie trailer. But, like, I wasn't like, this is me. This is my Mm -hmm. voice. That was a frustrating part of the situation is that, like, on the one hand... You'd be told, like, write what you think is funny. Like, do you? And then you would do you. And then people would not respond to it. So then the next week you'd, like, be like, okay, I'm going to do something that feels really broad and fits that niche. And, like, maybe it would get on, but you'd be like, I hate this. Um, Like, I remember one of my last weeks I wrote this sketch that I thought was really funny, but, like, people didn't give a shit about because Reese Witherspoon was the host, and I thought it was funny to write this infomercial where she's like the, she as herself is starting to get into the candy making business, and she's selling these candies that are clearly like Reese's Pieces and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, but she's like not aware that those exist, and she has, like instead of Reese's Pieces, she's like Reese's Bits and Chunks. (laughs) And during the infomercial, she keeps finding out that like this candy already exists and it has a better name. And it was also this peas in a pod sketch with like Beck Bennett played her brother and his name was Tyrese. So it was Reese and Tyrese Witherspoon. And I thought it was just like so silly and weird. And I loved it, but like, you know, it didn't go anywhere. And like another time I wrote like this commercial parody in December because it was, it was around the holidays. And so it was like lean cuisine for advent calendars where it's like, I don't know if you're familiar with advent calendars, but like you pop them open and sometimes there's like chocolate inside. So like it was an advent calendar where there were like tiny little lean cuisines and it was so stupid and actually got like a good, 
perception, but you know, like with so many things in this business, like something doing well or like you having a good audition or is such a small part of like, is it actually going to go anywhere? Right. I know it's, it's kind of frowned upon there, but would you ever like pitch a sketch again if it didn't like go well one week? Maybe I did once or twice, but you know, I didn't like do great there. So I kind of like felt like it's not going to help me to like double down on this thing that people didn't love that well anyway, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so you left after one year. Yeah. Uh, would you have done anything differently during that time? Yeah, I wouldn't have gotten so stressed. I mean, mm-hmm. I really the whole time just stressed myself out because I was worried about being fired and then I was fired and it was fine. Um, and like, you know, having space from it, I really realized like, you. Yeah, so much of that is just like, who's there your year? How is Lauren feeling? Did the show get nominated for an Emmy? Like, you know, stuff that it's like, I just was, I mean, not to say that I was blameless. Like, I didn't write great stuff. But um, I also was like there at a year that wasn't the right time. And I also was more of an actor and didn't ask to be hired. Like, I didn't submit a writing packet So, you know, it was just kind of like not the right timing for me and not the right position. But I also feel really lucky that I had the experience because one, it took my career up to another notch. I had always wanted to be on the show. So to get to like see what the show was like, so I could know like, oh, this is like way more toxic than, (laughs) you know, you dream about when you're a 14 year old, but also to like not be on the show so that when I was let go, I wasn't facing like the same kind of public embarrassment that, like, cast members can face. So, all in all, I feel like I was, like, pretty protected by the universe. <laughs> uh, what advice would you give to somebody, like, uh, hired as a writer on the show? Just be nice to yourself and yeah. do your best. And I think what's really hard is that everybody there, for the most part, is, like, a decent human being, but you're stressed out And the system is set up in a way that's, like, very not conducive to creativity and collaboration. So you can, like, turn into a dick because you're so scared. I had weeks where I would, like, you know, like, I was hired along with four other writers. And, like, those writers, on the one hand, are, like, your buddies. And then on the other hand, they're your competition. And so, like, if you got a sketch on one week, suddenly you're the cool kid and people want to work with you. And then if the next week you don't, no one wants to work with you. So you turn into, like a clicky asshole and it's like you know try not to do that and just like I I think a ton of it is really out of your control so just surrender to that and like try to maintain your humanity (laughs) (laughs) uh you were uh, one of the stars on party over here Uh uh-huh how did how did that show come out that was a cool experience that was also related to SNL basically when I auditioned uh like when I tested they were, I guess, you know, considering me strongly. And so a thing that I learned happens is that if you're being considered strongly, they'll send your tape to recent cast members. So they sent my tape to Andy Samberg and he was like, this girl's great. Like, you guys should put her on the show. Which I was super, like, um, blown away to find out about. The way I found out about that actually was that right after I got hired a friend of mine was writing for Brooklyn Nine-Nine and she was in the writer's room and he, like, 
I guess she had mentioned me and he's like, I saw her tape. She was great. So I was like, so floored by that. And then I was there the 40th season and there was the, um, 40th anniversary show and Andy like came up to me and was like hey I'm Andy like I think you're great and I was like you know (laughs) so touched so like in a panic I also was like I think I'm gonna be fired like just and he was like no you're fine and so but he was like I have a production company and if you ever want to like make something and I was like yeah so I started like talking to his production company about this idea that I'd had and it was so nice and then when I got fired, I was like, they're not going to want to work with me. And they like, didn't even bat an eye. So nice. Um, and so we were working on this pilot presentation, but then like they had sold a sketch show to Fox that was going to be three women, but they didn't have like specific women attached. And they ended up, um, offering that to me, uh, which was great. Um, especially like after being let go from SNL, I like really wanted a next thing. Um, and then that was like almost the polar opposite experience of SNL where like everyone was really like really kind and cool and positive, but it like was not a well-oiled machine. Whereas even though I feel like SNL is like a broken machine, it's like, it, yeah, it's, I don't know if, what the right adjective is, but like it is a machine. It knows how to work. It, know, it knows how to operate. Whereas like this new thing was like, what are we doing? Um, so yeah, but it was like really cool. It was great to like establish myself as a performer. And um, I felt a bit like it was like a boy band where they like, you know, Fox sort of artificially put us together. Um, and it it wasn't like a key and peel where it's like, these are two people who've been like working together forever. And like they're in the writer's room and the, you know, like, I would come into the writer's room as much as I could because I knew that that would help um, just, like, make the show in line with my voice. But, you know, really it was like there were a team of discombobulated writers, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, it had its own problems, but it was, like, a cool thing to do. Um, yeah. Would you ever, like, go into the writer's room and, like, kind of pitch, like, characters that you... Oh, yeah, all the time. hmm And, like... So how involved were you in the writing process? Pretty involved. I tried to just come every day. I probably was there like 70% of the days. When you uh, work as a performer, like what are you looking for in a sketch that you're about to do? You know, a character that I'm excited about, um, a clear idea, inventive writing, good jokes, Mm -hmm. quality, (laughs) you know. Uh, so you go from being a writer at like this institution like SNL and now you're like uh, one of the stars of this show what's that transition like? I was more fun to be a performer and I felt more like this is me but it also was scary in a new way of like well is the show going to be good? Is anybody going to watch? What's it going to look like? Do I have any control? You know so just like different problems Mm -hmm. not as stressful because SNL is like a pretty stressful place but yeah. Uh, why do you think there wasn't another uh, season of the show? Because I think that uh, there were just a handful of factors not in its... Like, Fox gave it zero dollars, so right, right. Um, you really couldn't do much, like, nearly as much as you should, and, like, I think that they, it was, like, sort of artificially put together. I think they should have taken, like, a pre-existing... Duo, I think that, um, yeah, it just, like, 
wasn't the sharpest set of tools, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But you know, that it's these are like champagne problems. <laughs> uh, what would you like to be doing next? Yeah, uh, making my own stuff, and I'm in. The, I shot a pilot for TBS's new late night block, which is really exciting, and we're sending off the treatment for the full season like this week. Um, and so we'll see if that gets ordered. Uh, but I, it's funny, I, in therapy the other day, articulated, like, it's great to book acting roles. Like, I'm on the Goldbergs now. Is this fun recurring part. It's, like, such a fun thing to one or two days a week come into a network sitcom and, like, do a fun part. But, like, to me, that's, like, icing on the cake. And the cake is, like, making stuff. And I would like to be prolific and have made a ton of stuff. And I've had waves of making stuff, but I feel like, you know, it's been a while. And like when you're starting out, all you can do is like shitty improv shows in a basement and like dumb videos. And you're doing it because you want to get to a place where you can like get cool meetings and do auditions and get into the rooms. And I've gotten to that point, but then you do sort of miss like your shitty improv shows and your dumb little videos because there's an immediacy, there's a control. So I want to just get back to like, I I would love it if there was a way, in the way that like people who do podcasts are like, every week I make the thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know that it needs to be quite every week, but I just want to be like putting out a video or something. Um, So I'm just trying to, at least I know what I want. And now it's just a matter of like finding the right way to do it but yeah I want to be paid to create my own stuff and I want it to be good <laughs> uh, okay so we're gonna wrap up okay with you giving your thoughts on something I wrote this is a sketch pitch basically. okay so basically pitch you the sketch oh my gosh uh, so this would be like a, like a post zombie world like it would be zombie world not okay zombie world. Uh, it's people like sitting around uh, and they're talking about like uh, their lives before the zombies they're talking about like, what people they miss or something. Yeah, people they miss. Okay. And then uh, one guy says, like, uh, I wonder if uh, George Clooney is still around. And so basically the idea of it is, like, this guy, the game of it basically is that a man is, like, obsessed with celebrity culture. And, uh-huh. Like, even as the zombies uh-huh. are coming uh, in. Uh-huh. And so, like, it, he's, like, thinking, like, I wonder how the zombie apocalypse is affecting, like, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's reconciliation uh-huh. and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he, like, has the wrong priorities. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a classic sketch of, like, it's sort of like a, you know, a group game where people are like, oh, I'm, like, worried about, you know, my wife if she's survived this or, like, my child and then someone else is like, Taylor Swift, you know, and yeah. people straight meaning the, like, frivolity of that. Mm-hmm. I think it's got legs. All right, there we go. Yeah. Uh, all right, thanks for coming in. Anything you want to plug? Um, no, I'm, life is good, and I wish everyone great peace. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow on Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. This has 
been a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.